0: choices Americans deal with, including in their decisions about education, training, and employment, can be paralyzing. Given how critical decision-making is, it's a wonder we don't spend more time thinking about and developing skills for making good decisions. We're often stuck between, do as I say, and you're on your own. We'd probably get better results if we thought about decision skills as something that develops over time in dialogue with family, friends, teachers, and even figures from history and philosophy who gave their whole lives to defining what it means to live, quote, a good life. According to Ben and Jenna's story, this combination of a choice-rich environment and a relative lack of preparation for making choices leads to restlessness, a theme they explore in a new book, Why We Are Restless, on the modern quest for contentment. In my conversation with Ben, we learn both about the ideas of the book in his own quest for contentment.
1: Ben Story, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks so much for having me on, Brett. It's really great. Um, I think about you and Jen's work uh, a lot um, as it interacts with my own uh, around the topic of vocation. So I've really been looking forward to doing this. and I'm glad we were able to, and I'm glad that you're well enough. Covid comes for us all, so um, I'm glad we were able to uh, that you were feeling up to, to doing this.
2: My own bout of Covid was, which I, I got last Monday, was blessedly uh, mild. Glad to be at least far enough out of it that we can talk by phone. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, and I also appreciate that uh, that we that we're maintaining a healthy social distance while we do this. So if the audio sounds different, everyone out there in the listening world, that's why. So I want to get you to talk, we're going to talk about vocation, right? Uh, a lot of, of your own work and my work um, is also um, centered on vocation. So I want to hear about your vocation first. Um, how did you um, kind of arrive at the idea that you uh, might be interested in becoming a college professor and a Pointy head, academic, and um, you know, a a a lover of ideas, and somebody who wanted to work around ideas. How did that happen for you?
2: It was the money, Prince. <laughs>
1: well, I, you know, I sort have of clarified that at the beginning. It, it, you know, that's the obvious thing, of course, is that it is a uh, you know a, a path to extraordinary riches. But leaving the money aside,
2: what? Was it? And so um uh, that's a that, that's a that's a great question we've always enjoyed when we when um, Jen and I taught at uh, Furman for um 17 years and we had speakers down to campus we loved hearing their stories the um about how they became who they are Sam, um, our our story at this point contains yet another wrinkle which is that we've of course moved from Furman to uh AEI where we're very happy to be and you know, in my own case um this was a somewhat serendipitous and and um uh surprising path to me at least as a um as a young man so uh i was a uh foolish and wayward high school student uh my um my uh, high school was too politically correct to give f's and so i got e's the um and other uh other uh, decorative uh letters from the the alphabet i really was a uninspired and not good high school student my mom loves to say that america is the land of second chances and and i got a a wonderful second chance and heading off to college and getting in a way to start over. And when I landed at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I, I did that. And um, I, I just found myself instantly charmed by the place. And the charm of the place was the things that it took seriously, that it put first in its uh, hierarchy of honor. So, for example, my my favorite teacher when uh, my first semester on campus was a physicist. And I don't have any particular aptitude for physics. I wasn't a great physics student or something like this. But I just loved listening to this man talk, and I loved how seriously he took the work that he did. He was just trying to get to the bottom of things. And you know, on college campuses – you find people like this who would, in the outside world, be kind of low men on the totem pole. In other words, you know, people with with um, with bad clothes and dandruff and um, uh, poor dental hygiene, who like know everything about some obscure ancient religion. Those people are people that get taken seriously. On college campuses, at their best, and I really cared from the moment I walked onto a college campus. It that that was charming to me. This world in which the pursuit of truth, wherever it led, the uh, could be the reigning concern of a um, of a of a community. So that was my initial uh, experience with with college and my my initial attraction to it. I then met my own first important mentor, a man named Larry Goldberg. Uh, And Larry uh, taught at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and he still does. And Larry taught these wonderful courses on the best that has been thought and said in uh, the Western tradition. And he just delighted in everything that he was reading. He took it all seriously as if it might be true. And that was distinctive the um on this um, particular campus, and he took his students it, it, he was he really listened to us and was really concerned with what we had to say. and so um that also was a really important step for me. I basically wanted to be like Larry, and so I went off to graduate school at this very distinctive program called the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and we could talk more about that if it's of interest. And um, my wife there, the two of us were studying together this, this very distinctive uh, graduate school curriculum in philosophy, history, and literature. I wrote a dissertation on the French essayist Michel de Montaigne. I somehow almost miraculously waltzed from that dissertation into a tenure track job down at Furman University. That was the the one and only academic job the um, that I that I that I needed and 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 fortunate uh, I was fortunate enough to to get. And we were there for 17 years, built a program called the TOFO program that was focused on building a student community around the kinds of questions that we ask. And then we decided to take a little field trip. We decided to come up here to Washington, to AEI for a year, in part because we were political science professors who'd never actually observed politics at first hand. We wanted to have some idea of um, the stuff we discussed every day and how it actually worked. So we came up to D.C. and to AEI on sabbatical. And we're working in a division called the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Division that is headed up by our, our old friend, uh, Yuval Levin. And we have we have known Yuval for a long time, since graduate school. And we have been great admirers of his. We, we frequently describe him as the person of our generation most likely to do good by thinking. And Yuval, when it became clear that it would be possible for us to stay at AEI and to participate in the work of the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Division, well, that's that's a very high and uh, exciting ambition that this this place spoke to. That is the the ambition to actually try to do something with your thinking that will do some good for your country, and that's something that we wanted to participate in, and so. That is our our long and winding road, the um, from uh, or my long and winding road from wayward youth to um, to uh, our um, uh, beloved think tank.
1: So, I, very very interesting. There's so much there uh, that you could probably make a whole podcast just out of that journey. But I I do want to back you up to the very beginning mm-hmm. of it and ask you why you were such a bad high school student.
2: (laughs) you know i was um i was reading an an essay uh by joseph epstein a wonderful uh chicago-based essayist yesterday uh called autodidact in which he was describing his own experience as a student and he like me was a terrible student (laughs) and why it's well i was very bad at paying attention to anything that i didn't intrinsically care about I didn't have the kind of discipline that I've observed in other young people, and I just admire this in them, of making themselves study things that are not immediately uh, attractive to them. And so I was like that. If I couldn't, you know, I, I just found high school boring, and I could not apply myself to something that was boring. And that was a lack of self-discipline, and it was connected in many ways to vices and sins. The um, and so I, I, you know, I don't want to defend this. But, you know, that is the truth of how I experienced my, you know, uh, generally well-regarded American high school was that this was just not interesting. And that reflected, that was reflected in my my mediocre academic performance. Yeah, I mean, it sounds
1: exactly like my experience. That's high school <laughs> I guess I learned from that that, yeah, I was lazy and undisciplined. I don't think there's any, any doubt about that. Um, but there's also a positive lesson in there, and I want to explore that with you a little bit um, because I think it relates to the rest of the conversation. Because I made a decision when I when I finally got to college, uh, uh, almost I just turned eighteen years old and, and was on a college campus, and I was pretty intimidated by it. Uh, I it was at the University of Oregon, so it was you know certainly the biggest thing that I had ever been part of coming from high school with uh, a graduating class of 121 students. Um, and uh, and I made a pretty uh, explicit decision that if I was going to finish those, then I, I knew myself well enough that I was going to have to focus on something. I mean, I was going to have to major in something that I actually liked. You know that mm-hmm. I was that I would study for its own sake, uh, just because it was in you know intrinsically interesting, innately interesting to me. Um, and so that was my you know that was sort of the bet that I made with myself was look you you, you know yourself well enough that you know you're not going to finish this if you if you don't love it, if you don't love what you're doing. Um, and uh, and. And I think I was—I think I was right about that, you know, for myself. Uh, and it really has that insight about myself. I think shapes a lot of the way that I think about vocation uh, and calling, um, which is that the things that we love um, tell us something very important about vocation and calling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering what you make of that because I know that you're, you know, like. uh, both you and Jenna are uh, pretty hard on this idea of like uh, passion, you know, the, the sort of the, the uh, popular idea of pursuing passions and listening for the inner voice and, and all of those things. So how do you distinguish those two things? Sort of like knowing knowing what you love, And uh, and not getting swept away in a false notion of passions.
2: That's that that story is is reminiscent of my own, and and I think the question can really help us um, get at something here. You know, I like you experienced college as a place in which I was looking to concentrate on and think about. Things that I really cared about, and for all the defects of my um, my choices in high school, one of the things that was useful about that is I was not a kid who arrived in college having always pleased all the authorities in my life, and that forced me to take. My own bearings, uh, use my own judgment in attempting to navigate the choices in front of me. Because I just, you know, I just couldn't be guided by praise and blame. And so most of what I got was blame. The I, I, <laughs> it was a dessert. The <laughs> but um, and so uh, you know, whereas whereas you know, many of my uh, you know, many of my 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 college students later on. You know, They had to overcome a different kind of obstacle than I had to overcome. I had to overcome bad habits. I had to overcome passions. I had to overcome those kinds of foolishness. They've had to overcome the ability to please their elders and the tendency to just keep doing whatever everybody says is or whatever the most important people in their lives say is the right thing. You know, I, I was perfectly willing to look askance at authorities the, uh, when I got to um, college because most of the authorities in my high school had not been, in my own view, again, my own view being jaundiced. They had not been people worth taking seriously. Um, there are a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, I really didn't think the adults that were running my high school knew what they were doing and/or knew what they were talking about when they talked to us about how to live. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I went onto a college campus looking to find somebody, you know, that was my question. How should I live my life? I couldn't have articulated it. I couldn't have articulated it that way at that point. But that was what I was interested in. And I was looking for somebody who had something to say to that question. Mm-hmm. And so while I admired that physicist professor I mentioned, because he was so serious about the pursuit of truth, and he represented something to me, as by way of an example. It was Larry Goldberg who was the person who showed me how I could attack that question. And I think this leads to the other part of what you're saying is that you know, I was not attacking that question but trying to discern what the inner voice inside of me was saying. I was looking at what uh, the best that had been thought and said about that question, about the question of how to live, and trying to figure out who had the best arguments, wh- who painted the most convincing portraits. Of a human life well lived, and so that activity became the center of my own education, and eventually became the center of my own teaching. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Really. Uh, that's really interesting. I was. I was not nearly as mature as
1: you were, uh, uh, in terms of like uh, thinking about uh, like what does it mean to live well? Um, uh, what What is the good life? Uh, I was thinking more about survival. Like, (laughs) uh, I don't know what, I I don't know how to do those. I haven't had anybody model it for me. I don't know how it works. And so I've got, uh, so I've got to just grab on to the things I love. In my case, it was history and I was going to study history. And, uh, And I believe that was like a really good, that was really the best decision that I was able to make. Looking back, if I could do my undergrad. Uh, over again, I probably would have spent more time in the philosophy department uh, and based on what I know now, but I didn't know that. So all, all the all the storytelling uh, that we're doing right now about, you know, sort of our, our, our approach to these early chapters of life, um, I think are really um, critical questions, and there may not be just one path to get to it. Uh, like you're gonna if if you're if you're thinking kind of broadly about life, you're likely to wind up getting to these to these critical questions that that you you actually got an earlier start on just because you you knew some you knew yourself better, I think, uh going in. Um well Brent,
2: I was <laughs> with respect to my own and you know, nineteen year old self knowledge, all I can say about it is that um You know, I looked around at people who were saying kind of like plausible sounding things like, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer or uh, something like this. And, you know, that was just reflective of this like precocious prudence about how to live a life and what would land one in a good place in the American pecking order. And the notion of myself as prudent at that point in my life was just so preposterous that I couldn't entertain it for a second <laughs> and so I was forced to like, like, well, yeah, well, what do you actually care about? You know, that was, that was the only question I could seriously ask. Yeah. And I,
1: I think the question being asked increasingly by students, it, it continues to be the pragmatic question of, you know, like what am I going to do? What, how am I going to sustain myself uh, in the future economically and mm-hmm. and what's the what's the most direct route to that that uh, that economic conclusion that is the most thing that's like lodged in my brain um, yeah. and uh, and so uh, a lot of the uh, you know we all at aDI and you in particular've you been working with uh, college students for Seventeen years, um, we have these encounters um, speaking on college campuses, and that pragmatism is uh, really the like the overwhelming kind of, kind of sensation that I get from meeting with and talking with students. Very rarely does anybody you encounter a student that thinks these are worthwhile. Uh, you know that the, the, the good life might be a worthwhile question. You know, ask about uh, and and there's actually very little to any support I think coming from home uh, mm-hmm. about uh, about asking uh, that question or regarding it as being an important one. And so every every decision boils down to a pragmatic one um, of. How, how will this help me kind of maneuver towards this other for yeah. this other goal? What do you think about that?
2: Oh, well i think it's I think it's a true observation about how students on campus talk. Um, a friend of ours at uh, Villanova University, Mark Schiffman, wrote an article a few years ago called "Majoring in Fear." Mm. And it was precisely about this phenomenon that he was observing among students that we observed among our own students. Students are paralyzed by this notion that they have a very narrow path to navigate or they're going to end up on food stamps and they really don't want to do that. And in a certain sense, one understands. On the other hand, It, frankly, for the large majority of the students that we were teaching made very little sense. And the same is true of the students that that Mark is teaching and many college students. I think college students, you know, when I was, when I was in college, my, I, you know, I just came from an ordinary middle-class household, but I mean, everything was always okay my household. We weren't on the, we were never teetering on the brink. And something in me just kind of deeply assumed that that was going to continue. And while that might be a reflection of a kind of privilege, and I think it is, it's a privilege an awful lot of Americans actually have, Mm -hmm. even if they don't know it. And it would be, it would frankly, I think, behoove a lot of them to worry less yeah. about hand-to-mouth questions and just kind of assume, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm going to be fine. I'm yeah. going to find some way to support myself because the vast majority of them are going to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. And they can afford to be less pragmatic in the in the dull sense than many of them are. I mean, I, I think the, the way that you describe uh, the students you've encountered talking – the term that I came up with for it was dorm room Machiavellianism. Mm. You know, I'd get some bright eyed kid who'd come in at 18 and, you know, they were, you know, we have our first conversations about their classes and and those conversations that go pretty well. And they were thinking pretty broadly about, you know, the kinds of things they might like to study. And then I'd see them again six weeks later after they'd been in the dormitories for a little while. And they were picking up the cunning that was the talk of their classmates as to how they navigated their course choices, their choices of advisors, their choices of you know summer activities and so on and so forth um, and it was just it was really dulling to their souls mm-hmm. and you know this is what you know if anything that i want to uh, I want to try to communicate to to people who are going through these kinds of choices is it is so frequently the case that they use a kind of ends-means logic in which they make uh, choices about means in terms of where they think they're heading without actually thinking about where they're heading with any serious attention. In other words, they just take for granted. What I care about in life is making plenty of money, living in a comfortable situation, the uh, living in an attractive place like D.C. or something like this, Instead of thinking about the question, what kind of activities do I wish to fill my days with, mm-hmm. which is a much more important question for how you want to live. And that's, but, but I think it's very hard for the young to take those questions seriously because so many people around them, and actually, I think it comes more from their peers than it does from their parents. Mm-hmm. So, so many people around them are so focused. On this kind of uh, precocious, um, dumbed-down, uh, not very intelligent version of prudence.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's a chicken and egg proposition. Um, right. You know, why why is it the predominant um, uh, approach? And I I suspect that there is this conversation going on at home. In the, in the, particularly in the high school years of, okay, we're, we're middle class, you're going to college, uh, what, what, what are you going to study? And then the, that killer of all, uh, curiosity questions, uh, what are you going to do with that? Right. Um, you know, like that, that, that question is really, I think, an expression of economic anxiety. Um, yeah. uh, you know how are you, not what do you do with that Whether what parents are asking is how are how am I going to make sure that you don't mind up back in my basement? Um, yeah. You know uh, that you're going to be a self-sustaining adult um, rather than somebody who you know is my responsibility. You know for another twenty while you while you sort things out. So parents want answers. You know to that to that question, I think that that gets built into uh, the operating system, as it were, for high school students as they start thinking about college uh, education. And what I, I take a very similar stance when I'm, uh, I'm talking with students, um, you know, one of the things I'd love to point out to them is that they live in a, in a nation which has around a $24 trillion economy. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. It 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 is you know, it's the biggest by far, it's the most dynamic. Uh chances are, I'm just spitballing here, but chances are you're gonna find a place somewhere in this economy that keeps you out of a homeless shelter. So take that off of your off of the list of things that you need to be afraid of. You know, yeah. and and think you have the privilege and really the responsibility uh, as a middle-class American to, to to think deep more deeply than that you know questions of how can you contribute not how you can survive yeah. um, and so anyway that's
2: I I, I just Anyway, go ahead. that's no, that's that, that, that very nicely put, Brent. That you know how you can contribute rather than how you can survive, and you know, and, and I think if you figure out the answer to the question of how you can contribute, that how you will survive. That's going to follow from that. If you are an honest, upright person who knows how to make yourself useful to others, like r- responsibility and recompense are going to come your way. It's you know it's not that common <laughs> to right. be a a, uh, a a fully functional, capable, uh, contributing adult. The um, you know we 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 compensate people the um, who uh, who know how to do this. The um, and, and, you know I wanted to come back to your characterization of the conversation that goes on in the household and uh, put it in the following frame. You know, I think. A lot of these conversations go on with high school guidance counselors. I think a lot of them go on with college advisors. And I think the reason those conversations head in this utilitarian direction, you ask the student, what are they interested in? And then you ask them, what are they going to do with that? Yeah. Why does the, why do conversations take this form? I think they take this form actually out of a kind of respect. Or a kind of libertarianism that I think American adults feel obligated to, to, to honor. That is, I'm not going to tell you how to live. We're going to start this conversation with you. And then I'm going to sort of put my adult mind in the service. Of the kinds of things that you're saying, and what you know all adults know how to be prudential, or all like reasonably functional adults know how to do that, like what's the use you're going to make of that? That's the question that comes very naturally to anybody who's ever paid a mortgage, and so it is you know this is the kind of this is the kind of conversation that we enter into. I think that the young would be well served by educators who are perfectly willing to cross the border and say, well what do you want to do with yourself' And then say, not what are you gonna do with that? But why is that interesting to you?
1: Yeah. What
2: yeah. Sort of- I, I I yeah,
1: I completely concur. In fact, I would like almost reverse reverse those questions and say, Tell me what interests you. You know, that's to me, I don't know if you agree with this or not. Tell me what interests you because that's kind of a pointer to the raw material of who you are. Mm-hmm. Right? You're you know, I, I always like try to ask kids this question of like if if money if you were a trust fund baby and mm-hmm. money and economic survival were kind of off the table or mostly off the table, what would you what would you do then? You know, not because I I want them to go do that, but I want them to think about like what is it that is intrinsically interesting to them. Uh, and and then start to think about from and talking from a workforce development standpoint, but you can't that that's not the stopping point, that's the starting point. You still have to have this discussion with yourself about the market and and what the market wants and needs and where Uh, where those interests align in some way to the market. Um, So the market isn't a relevant question. It's a very relevant question. It's just like, but we seem to start there rather than with the person and, and who they are and, and the way that God has made them, I, you know, I, I, I'm coming from a, you know, a standpoint of transcendence, you know, like there, you're not here by accident and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you have, you, you've got, built you in a certain way to do something. We don't know what that is, but it's, or a bunch of somethings. So let's explore that. Um, and I just don't think, uh, I don't think that question typically, not that it doesn't ever get asked, but it's
2: pretty unusual. Or yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I think I would describe the same sort of nexus of questions in the following way. You know, first of all, yeah, I, I think you and I agree that it begins, you know, one begins by asking the young, what, what are you interested in? What do you care about? Yeah. You know, what You know, I, I would typically ask my advisees, like, which of your classes last semester were your favorites and, and, and why Yeah, yeah. And try to get them, get, get them started from something to which they were responding. Yeah. And then though, then there's let, let's, let's call it an abstract question and a concrete question. The abstract question is, okay, what good are you pursuing mm-hmm. when you are interested in the following kinds of questions? And so, you know, if you are um if your most exciting class last semester was a business class, is that because you're interested in money or well, why are you interested in money? What kind of a good is money? What can money do for you? what can't money do for you the um what might you need to look at beyond money that is you know for example, like what's useful about money money is useful because it can buy stuff the um it can it, it it's a it's it's a means toward the um, the kind of life you might like right. to live. But what is the content of right. the kind of life that you want to live? And so, you know, you can advance people mm-hmm. uh, through these kinds of categories toward a more substantive vision of the good than something such as prosperity for its own sake. Yeah. So now that's the abstract side of this kind of question. Mm-hmm. The concrete side of this kinds of question. I think this is what you're describing as the market. You know, what I think of is the different human possibilities people have encountered. And so as a as a political science professor, I would encounter all the time students were telling me that they were headed off to law school. And my response to them was, do you know, do you know any lawyers? Um have you
1: <laughs> Yeah, I've got I've got something to say on this, so go ahead. <laughs> you
2: know, you know, like uh, have you have you shadowed them? Have you, have you talked to them about how they feel about their own professions, and what they what they like about this? And you know, there were some of my students who really wanted to be lawyers. And they, they they understood it from the inside. Sometimes they had parents who had been lawyers. They had, you know they'd seen it from up close. This was the thing that really made sense to them. And and you know there are there are people who live really noble lives out of the pursuit of the law. And there are other people who are just saying what people who had like significant uh, uh, verbal aptitudes were supposed to say when asked this uh, this kind of a question. But. I think a, a lot of, a lot of the reason that people default to these kinds of answers is because they haven't found other compelling human alternatives. In other words, who do I see around me that is making a life that looks to me like the kind of life that I might enjoy and that I might, uh, it, it, that might be a way of life that allowed me to be useful to other people. Which is, I think, really what a lot of us are looking for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, that um, you know, I, I and I've I've seen this uh, anecdotally, and I think there's actually some data to support it that you know, people who take this very utilitarian approach, um, you know, and they they want to you know they want to become a a, a computer programmer or IT specialist or work on artificial intelligence or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, it's a sort of prestigious high-paying position. It could be a lawyer or physician or whatever. Uh, and they, and they start down the path. And even some of those people, not all by any means, um, but, but what the data on this suggests is that midlife crisis actually happens a lot earlier than people think it happens um that it you know oftentimes it's maybe 10 years into a career um where people kind of look up from their desk where they've been toiling away uh and start asking uh you know is this all there is you know uh, it, it, am i ready to do this task that i trained for am I, am I ready to do this for the next 30 years of my life and, and, and often the answer is, uh, I don't think I am, but now I'm in so deep, I can't get out.
2: Wow. Um,
1: so, uh, so I think that, yeah, I think that it's a, the what, what I say to people is like, one of the riskiest things you can do with your life is something that you don't really care about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, that. I mean, that makes a history major or a history degree look like a piece of a rock, you know, like, <laughs> by comparison, because uh, this thing that you're, you're going to go after this thing, not for the thing itself, but for something that lies beyond it. Uh, you know, like I'm going to have the prestige of the job. I'm going to have the money that comes along with the job. Um, I want all these things, uh, but I don't really want the job you know the, the,
2: yes. it's not it's not it's not interesting to me it's you know brent you and i are lucky enough um at aei we're, we're constantly surrounded by yeah. very capable young people yeah. and you know i do some teaching um every summer for the her talk program um just up um connecticut avenue from our our offices on on dupont circle and there, you know, I just encounter these remarkable young people that the Hurt Dog Program brings in the um, from the best schools in the nation. And I have wonderful conversations with these people. And There's all kinds of fascinating things going on in their souls and their lives. But sometimes I will encounter in those conversations people who tell me about their life plan, which involves uh, making a lot of money and retiring early and then you, you know, they, 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 they're talking to people in their in their early 20s who are who are who are conceiving of their lives in these terms um and the you know the same thing with um you know lots of young people around Washington the the question on their minds they love Washington and I understand that I love Washington the uh, but you know the question on their minds is how do i stay in dc how do i you know, put together the kind of life that I want to live here. And so in both cases, people are focused on the conditions of the good life rather than the core of the question. So for example, if, you know, people think about uh, finance and consulting, and, you know, these are lucrative careers. One understands why people are attracted to them. However, do you want to be the kind of person you're going to be If you spend 60 hours a week engaged in that activity, Mm. because, you know, that's what this question of vocation is really all about. Mm. And the one thing that I will give my own vocational uh, choices credit for was I saw my favorite teacher when I was an undergraduate. I admired the kind of person he was, not because he was fabulously wealthy or prestigious or anything like this, but because... You know, I, I recall one day uh seeing him walk across campus. It was after class. I was out for a run. And he was leaving the building, and I happened to be running by, and he was just walking off to his car. And he had his head cocked uh, to one side and this quizzical look at, on his face, and he was laughing. And he didn't see me, and he wasn't talking to anybody else. But I knew him well enough to discern what was going on, there, which is that he was having a conversation with Plato or uh, Herman Melville or Shakespeare or, uh, or Jane Austen or whoever it is, these books that lived in his head. And he had just come to some funny juncture in this conversation with whatever author <laughs> he was talking to. And he had an interior life, a very rich interior life. Yeah, And, you know, that was what I admired, or that was part of what I admired of this man. I admired many things in him.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So, and this gets to the, uh, and I know this is an area you've thought a lot about. People, other people at AEI think about and talk about a lot. I think about it all the time, which is we have this love for this thing called the humanities, which, Mm. which becomes, which, which is the place historically where these questions of meeting a purpose are explored uh and where you wrestle with you know the questions what is the good life and how do i live it um and and so we we have this this is the fundament this is the foundation of western civilization it's the in my i'm just telling you what i think but i'm sure you agree which is you know, this is the, the fertile ground out of which the whole world that we live in that we inhabit has grown out of, um, and and it's extremely important. Just on, uh, it's not from a, not just because it's produced good things, but because it's true. You know, like it's true, and and because it's true, it's created a lot of uh, a lot of benefit. Um, but the humanities as as we know, uh, there's been a spate of stories around this, and I'm sure you've seen in the last couple of weeks of uh, you know, sort of the collapse of uh, uh, the number of people choose in the number of people choosing the major in the humanities. Um, and uh, so we, we've we've got a couple things going on, I think, which was you know we've got this. Um, well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I think about that. What, what's, what has happened to the humanities? Why isn't it uh, seen as being valuable? And why aren't people choosing it?
2: You know, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. I've actually been doing a little bit of thinking about this um, recently. Um, and, you know, there's an uh, uh, excellent new book by um, uh, two authors named Writer um, and Wellman and it's called Permanent Crisis, and it's about uh, what's going on in the humanities. The humanities can be easily described as in crisis right now. Uh, enrollments are plummeting. The uh, I think, if I recall correctly, majors such as English literature have lost about 25% Uh, since 2012, you might have more up-to-date statistics than I do, but in any case, it is a, um, this is an existential crisis that is in a way going on in the humanities. The, um, departments are shutting, um, uh, PhD programs are closing down, uh, the people who teach these kinds of things are dispirited. And so it's a, um, it's in some ways a real drama, but I actually think, you know, what writer and woman point out is that, um, the crisis of the, the people in the humanities have been talking about the crisis of the humanities for a couple of centuries. Yeah, and the crisis language is kind of convenient the, um, for humanists because it often is used to suggest that the humanities are fighting the good fight for the human things against the uh, degrading forces of modernity, and that of course casts the humanities in a heroic role. And I'm tempted to think that our um, AEI colleague Ross Douth has actually used the term that is more apt for a description of what's actually going on in the humanities right now, which is the term decadence. That is, that the humanities have, in many cases, as they're embodied on college campuses. They've become dull and repetitive and just not that interesting. um, it's, It's, to my mind, perfectly understandable why uh, many undergraduates don't want to study in our contemporary literature departments. What's going on there is actually, in many cases, just not not that interesting. And here, I think it's really useful to remember that the great flourishing of the humanities that occurred in the Renaissance occurred outside the university and occurred specifically as a response to what the Renaissance humanists saw as the decadence of the universities of their times. Mm. They thought these places were dead, that they were talking about questions that nobody really cared about, that they had their own arcane internal language that was um, not uh, illuminating the, the the pressing questions that were actually on people's minds. And they revived the ancient practices of poetry and history and literature And they brought, they gave those things tremendous life for the next couple of centuries. And it wasn't for uh, a long time that the humanities made their way into the universities and became uh, established practices there. And so I don't think the humanities themselves are dead. I think there's lots of interest in the humanities in our country. So for, you know, there are reading groups uh, all over the place. The classical school movement is um, something that's very exciting to me, something that my my family is involved in. And, you know, in our classical uh, elementary and high school, people are reading literature and history and philosophy with very serious attention and with the intention of shaping their lives in the light of the kinds of things that they discover there. That seems to me the place that we're going to see something of a revival, that we're already seeing something of a revival of the humanities in our time as a force that can shape people's lives, you know. As to you know, my hope is that in the long run, this will have a good effect on the colleges. But that's a that, that that's going to be a difficult thing. That's going to be a difficult bridge to cross.
1: So I mean, you you make a compelling case about uh, about the decadence uh, of the humanities, or, or Ross makes a uh, compelling case about it. in uh, in and, and I think there's you know when you describe how people were looking at the universities in the middle ages. It it's like, yeah, you could, that, those exact words apply today to the universities, um, as being weird and connected and, you know, obsessed with topics that, uh, you know, they may, they may or may not be important, but, uh, they're not the only things to think about. Um, so, uh, so i that part I get, and i and i I also think that the humanities the, the practitioners of the humanities and universities colleges and universities bear some responsibility for uh, in a sense kind of denigrating their own work, you know and saying mm-hmm. that that this stuff isn't important or that you know it's the product it's it's basically not just the product it's the basis for all kinds of uh, discrimination, you know, sort of attack on human dignity, uh, which is, you know, of course, the would be the ultimate irony if the humanities were responsible for degrading human beings. Um, so I think that that's all true. I wonder what your thoughts are, in going back to our pragmatism discussion, what role does American pragmatism play uh, mm. on devaluing of these kinds of studies?
2: That's a uh, that's a great question and a a question with significant history. And so, when um, when Alexis de Tocqueville visited this country all the way back in the eighteen thirties, he wrote that America is the uh, country in the world in which. The philosophy uh, the philosophy of Descartes is least studied and best followed. And I think what's really important about that is that Tocqueville had already drawn a bead in the 1830s before William James and the great pragmatists had done any of their work on the fact that Americans were going to interpret everything in the lens of practice and that this was going to prevent them. From paying attention to philosophy, and so there is something just innate to the American spirit that that approaches philosophy with pragmatic questions. And you know, I don't despise pragmatic questions. Mm. Um, you know, the sense that so, for example, the radical skeptic who says there's no such thing as truth, we can't know anything about how we should live our lives. Does that attitude? meet the test of practice does the radical skeptic remain a radical skeptic when he's standing before the jam jars in the grocery store or when he gets cut off in the traffic and you know and i think in both cases all of a sudden the radical skeptic turns out to have decisive opinions about the superiority of uh of of apricot jam to orange marmalade or the um injustice of the guy who just cut him off um and so, in this sense, I think that pragmatism can be deeply illuminating the uh, for um for how we live our lives. I think, however what what Jen and I have criticized in uh, this book that we wrote called um why we We're Restless is what we call merely reactive pragmatism. that is, there are so many people and particularly young people who are simply trying to read the world in terms of what other people think are important and trying to react to those opinions so they can sort of surf the wave or keep themselves afloat, as opposed to having the kinds of conversations that you and I were talking about at the, at, at the outset of our discussion, which are the kinds of conversations about what is actually good. And I think the young are frequently trained to believe that their minds can't actually help them sort through those questions that they have to either hear the call of the inner voice or that they're just left with a life that is basically absurd and chaotic. Mm. And, you know, I don't think that those are the choices. I think that it's actually possible to train your mind to use it, to think about the good life. Well, and yeah,
1: and, it, and I think it's, it's something I, always, I try to always leave students with, which is to say, you know, what, what you love is really important. Uh Don't let other people tell you that it isn't important, you know, Uh, and, and trying to, you know, sort of produce the value of, of, you know, that these things are important and that it's important for them to explore that, Um, you know, it, again as a pointer toward vocation and calling and
2: and, and the good life um, i think that's a, just yeah, a, a quick comment on 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 that part. I, look i think that's true i think however it one also has to subject one's love to cross examinations because we we all know that we've had self destructive passions Yep. and And so, you know, one has to say, like, what do I love? And is what I love actually conducive to happiness? And I think there's a, you know, there's there's an ancient philosophic formula, something that, you know, very much derived from the humanities and something that the humanities can still offer us today. Aristotle says happiness is activity of the soul in accordance with virtue over the course of a whole life. And does what I love match up to that? Does it put my soul to work Mm -hmm. in a way that is good for myself and others, Mm -hmm. in a way that is something that I can sustain over the course of a whole life? And so, you know, an activity such as um, playing the piano, becoming a great musician, this puts your soul to work in a really interesting way, right? It summons forth your powers. It gives delight to you. It gives delight to others. It does no harm. You know this is the kind of thing to which one could reasonably dedicate a life. You know there are other things, other kinds of passions that simply do not make sense uh, in the light of that. And so you know, you might enjoy drinking with your buddies on a Friday night, but is that really something out of which you can make a life? It probably isn't if you examine things closely. And so I think that you know in this sense, I think you're absolutely right that people need to pay attention to what they love. They also need to test what they love right by the question of by the question of virtue mm-hmm. by the question of the exercise of human capacities by the question of what actually serves over the course of a whole life
1: yeah i think that's uh, very well put um interrogating your your interests and your passions and your loves to find out whether they're really worth loving yeah uh, uh, rather than assuming that they are because they are the things that I happen to love at that moment, that they that they're worth loving. So I think I think that's really helpful um, addition to 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 the question that I ask, and it also points people back. to if you, you start if you start asking that question, the the very first question is, well, how would I know? You know, and what are the what tools do I need to be able to interrogate that? You know, and that <laughs> leads you back into um, these deeper questions that the that humanities examine. We're almost out of time, and uh, this is going to maybe just kind of a trivial question. It hasn't been trivial to me. In fact, I found it to be, it has revealed quite a bit to me just in the last week in thinking about Queen Elizabeth II, who just passed. What is it that a monarch does? What's the vocation of the monarch? I'm wondering what you have thought about and you're the kind of person who thinks about everything, so I'm sure you've been thinking about this. <laughs> uh what do you what do you make of both her and the whole idea of a constitutional monarchy?
2: So uh that's a that's a great question, Brett. And, and and it so happens that you know, my um my twelve-year-old got COVID too, and so the two of us had to be isolated. And on the day after uh, Queen Elizabeth died, we were having our dinner, and we decided to watch a documentary. Uh, I think the program was called Timeline, the um, of yeah. Queen Elizabeth. Warren. And yeah. I, you know, I'm not the sort of person who has ever been fascinated by royalty. The um, I'm not the sort of person who you know reads the tabloids about what's going on with you know Kate Middleton and 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 so on and so forth. The, um, but I was just utterly taken with that documentary of Elizabeth's life, particularly in its early period, and the way in which she became so steady a figure through uh, subordinating her life to duty. And so one of the most moving passages in this is the description of how you know, she was just married. She had a love marriage. She had a marriage of... Um, that uh, you know that she was uh, that she was uh, deeply um, happy with, as far as I can tell. Again, not having deep knowledge of Elizabeth or anything like this, but um, when she was young, and then her father, who seems to have been a man that she loved very much, and who was himself a good king, the um her father suddenly died, and she finds herself a monarch. And how does she respond? She knows that this is going to effectively mean uh, giving up a lot of what I think she cared about in her young marriage, and subordinating herself to duty. And she does it, and uh, her husband uh, supports this decision, and she makes this substantive person of herself that so many people admire and love over the course of the rest of her existence. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think, I I think she does set an example that a lot of Americans could be well-served by thinking about, which is that, Every substantive life that I know has been created by the subordination of one's life purpose to some particular uh, profession or task or way of life that comes to be utterly formative for the person in question. And so in, uh, you know, for me, the desire to be a great, college professor, was absolutely regulative for me for the long first phase of my career. And I fashioned everything I did after my own great examples. I I subordinated subordinated all of my activities, everything I was reading, everything I was saying to my students in the classroom, uh, the way in which I, I went about grading their papers, to the models that I had in front of me, it was a kind of duty that I thought I had toward this regulative idea. And I think living in the uh, in the light of such regulative ideas is how our lives gain steadiness and purpose. How we become something substantive. And I think you know, this is related to the conversation that you and I were having earlier about the way in which so often the young people that both of us know are thinking more about the circumstances of the kinds of lives that they want to live than the content of those lives. And what's important about the content of those lives is not only that this is actually how you're going to be passing your time, but this is who you're going to become. This is how you're going to think and talk. And how you think, talk, act, bury yourself in the world, well, that's who you are. That is the life you live. And, you know, somebody like Elizabeth obviously subjected herself to a regulative idea and she became this deeply substantive person by doing that, and I think a lot of us have much to learn from her example. And it's you know her her passing from the world is is the passing of something that we're not easily going to replace. Yeah, yeah. and that yeah you know, that is a real loss to to, to the rest of us. Yeah, it, that's
1: extremely well said. I mean, I I you know my reflections on this have been. Uh, kind of in the same vein, but it, it's almost like the role of the monarch, uh, in a constitutional monarchy where formal powers are severely limited, um, is, is to provide in a way the substance of the model for the substance of life. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you, you, uh, you become a self-governing people by governing yourselves, and <laughs> and and the queen, you could see her governing herself every day, uh, yeah. And in ev- every one of her appearances, which were always controlled, appropriate, uh, a gift to the people around her, you know, kind of, you know, this this is what it means to live well in a democratic society uh you know it is all the manners and forms um that yeah. she that she was showing um, uh Britain and and world um, about um what if, what what good civil and civic behavior actually looks like
2: so you know, yeah uh, yeah it, it uh, amazing. the point that you're making here is so important and you know i, I it, this is something that came to us often in our teaching was to remind, you know, we're very happy, my wife and I, that we live in a democratic society with all the opportunities uh, that that affords and with the superior justice of a democratic society. But no society enjoys all good things. That is, a democratic society is not absolutely superior to its fundamental alternative, which is aristocratic society. Democratic human beings have things to learn from aristocrats. Mm-hmm. And it's precisely the kind of things that you're describing right now. That is, if you have a life that is not constantly concerned with cutting your path in the world, with with making yourself into somebody, the um, within this uh, within the sort of democratic free for all, well, you have the chance to train yourself after something enduringly great. And I just we see examples of that. In aristocratic society, if we had the patience yeah. to pay attention to that kind of history, and that's not to say that any of us should want to go back to castles and serfs and blah de blah, blah, blah. The um, you know, yeah yeah yeah, I'm 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 happy we've left the um all that behind. But the examples of human greatness, somebody like Blaise Pascal, the um, who trained his soul to do just absolutely extraordinary things in the course of his very short thirty nine year life we should pay attention to people like that because they understand. I mean, in some ways, I think aristocratic societies are just, they're more, they're, they're more attuned to the fact of our mortality, the fact of, of, of making a mark that is going to, in some ways, endure. And so, you know, this guy, Blaise Pascal, was just, he was fixated on this and he burned himself up in the pursuit of it. He was gone by the time he was 39, but the legacy of accomplishment that he leads. In those thirty nine years it's just absolutely astonishing. It is genuinely world historical, and that's the kind of example people may need to pay a lot more attention to mm. is the example of these kinds of people who do something that that you know who who have their eyes on the horizon of if not eternity at least immortality you know that is that 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 is something that can really help us develop a little bit of steadiness and it's the steadiness that we lack above all, right excellent
1: excellent uh thought and word to end on uh okay so you and and jenna have written this wonderful book uh why we're why we are restless um and anybody who hasn't picked up a copy of this book should um as soon as they the podcast is over um, go and purchase one online or in a bookstore uh uh what else are you working on? Where else can people follow what you and Jenna are up to?
2: So Jenna and I's next project is a book about liberal education that is going to be called Town and Gown is our working title for it. And that, fra- that old phrase, Town and Gown, refers to the enduring tension between the things that people in gowns, university people, care about and the things that the surrounding community, that is the town, cares about. And those two things are not the same. And so there are lots of tensions between our universities and our political community right now. There are people in uh, our universities that seem uh, uh, instinctively hostile to anything and everything American. And there are Americans who seem instinctively hostile to absolutely everything that goes on in the universities. And we think that both these groups are wrong. But that tension between town and gown is something that has endured from the time of Socrates. And so we want to understand the deepest reasons why town and gown tend to be uh, in tension with one another. And to understand why it is that, nonetheless, uh, a country like the United States of America is extraordinarily generous in the support of its colleges, um, we have we are, our country has been described at various times as a land of colleges, which is really true. It's astonishing the kind of generosity that's that's devoted to these things and and rightfully devoted to them in the sense that you know I think America rightly recognizes. That colleges are a constructive counterculture, and that America needs that kind of counterculture but that that's not to say that 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 the counterculture that the colleges represent is always constructive, and we want to help think about how that that counterculture can be constructive again, so that's the purpose of our uh of our of our next project is is to think through. Um, this is, I think through this moment in the history of, Ohio, of American higher education in a really fundamental way. This is an exciting moment. There are lots of interesting projects getting off the ground. I think of the University of Austin, this brand new university that people are dreaming up, or, or schools like the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership out at Arizona State. People are starting really exciting projects. And precisely at such a moment, when such projects are getting started it's a moment in which we have the greatest need for really fundamental dispassionate reflection on what a college is and ought to be and that's the kind of work that jen and i are going to try to do in this next book and so yeah that's uh, that's what our next project is focused on well thanks
1: thank you so much for coming on, hardly working, and talking about this vital subject matter, the, the most important subject matter that any human individual can consider is, what are they going to do with themselves? And it's so great to have your insight and Jenna's insight on this, and it's great having you as a colleague at AEI, and I look forward to having you back again soon.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me on, Brent. I think we uh, we didn't talk about any of the things we intended to talk about, and that was really yeah, fun. That's not that's certainly
1: not true. I looked through the list of things we were going to talk about. We touched on almost all of them in some way. So uh, we're, we're, we're good. So, <laughs> thanks, thanks again, Beth. Take care.
2: Okay.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.